the primary character in chapter 12 is Peter. We're back to Peter now for a short period of time, but after the night, really, he's going to walk off the pages of Scripture and we're going to see him no more in the book of Acts except for one time a little bit later on, just in mentioning. But as far as his ministry is concerned, the book of Acts after tonight will finish up with Peter and Paul will be in the center spectrum. He'll be in center stage and the spotlight shines on Paul the Apostle. But before we get into tonight's study, I want you to read something penned by Peter years after this incident. And I want you to tuck it away in your brain because it forms for us an outline. Peter, when he wrote his epistle of 1 Peter, quoted one of the Psalms of David in the Old Testament. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter said, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, nor reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For, and now he quotes, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And here's the scripture I want you to focus on is verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, if there's one scripture verse that sums up chapter 12 of Acts, it's verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 3. And it seems to be like a perfect outline. We see this scripture fulfilled in the life of Peter. First of all, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God knows what you're going through. He sees your trial tonight. And his ear is open to your prayers. When you pray, God moves. And finally, for those who might hassle you, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're going to see that fulfilled in this chapter. And so we read in chapter 12 of Acts. Now about that time, the time of the great revival that we just read about, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, right before Passover, when the week before they would search the house to find leaven to purify their homes for Passover. And so when they had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Now this first section that we're going to read in this chapter, you could write over it, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Peter is going to be persecuted for his faith in Christ, but not to worry. The Lord's eyes are upon him. God sees his trial. Now I want you to apply that to your life as you're reading this tonight. God sees and knows fully whatever you are going through, be it good or bad. God is not blind to it. God has not forgotten you. Some of you think sometimes God has forgotten you and that God is working in everybody else's life but yours, but it's not true. And if there's any place where you would think that God has forgotten you, surely it must be in prison. And Peter could no doubt think, God, I am forsaken. 
I'm going to be killed. James was killed, and Peter's next for his head on the chopping block. For it says they were intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Herod, well, put it this way. Herod's family was too complex to even try to explain to you tonight. Even for me, I've tried to study the Herodian family for years. It's a mess. Because the Herod we read about here was the grandson of Herod the Great, the nephew of Herod Antipas. Herod the Great had ten wives. Most of them he killed. And most of his sons he killed. In fact, they had a saying that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his own son. He was a crazy madman. Herod the Great was the one that killed all of the babies in Bethlehem two years and under. And then Herod Antipas, the uncle of this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist, for John the Baptist mouthing off to him about taking unlawfully Herodias as his wife. So they come from a, a history of blood. Yet, Herod the Great was in some ways respected by the Jewish nation. Most of the Jews hated him, but the government of Israel loved him because of, well, not loved him, they tolerated him and respected him because he helped build their temple. If you go to Israel today, you can still see remains of the fortress called Masada. Some of you have seen the movie Masada. Or the fortress of Herodian in another place, magnificent structures that Herod the Great built. Also, the remains of the temple in Jerusalem, which Herod the Great built. So he was helping out the Jews by building certain things for them. But at the same time, the Jewish populace, the common person, hated Herod the Great because he was an Edomite. He was from the area of Saudi Arabia and Jordan. And the Jews despised having someone who was a non-Jew rule over him. On the throne now is Herod Agrippa who knows that the Jews hate him because he's an Edomite. And so to please the Jewish people, to gain their respect, he decides, I'll kill the people the Jews hate. Who do the Jews hate? Christians. So he kills James with a sword, puts Peter in prison, intending to bring him out after Passover and kill him. So, as we read about back in verse 2, James becomes the first apostle to be martyred. Stephen was the first martyr. James is the first apostle to be martyred. What a horrible death to get your head chopped off. Interesting in light of a conversation that James' mom had one day with Jesus. When she went up to Jesus and she said, Jesus, I have one small request, and that is, I would like my boys, James and John, one to sit at your right hand and one to sit at your left hand in your kingdom. Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink the same cup that I'm going to drink from and be baptized with the same baptism that I'm baptized with, speaking of his death? And they said, yeah. They had no idea what they were saying. And Jesus said, well, you know what? You will drink the same cup of suffering and be baptized with the same baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right and left hand is not mine to give. But it's my Father who would give it to whom it's prepared. 
And so they said, we're willing to follow you. We're willing to do whatever it takes. And interestingly enough, James is the first one to be martyred to drink of the cup of suffering. His brother John gets exiled a few years later to an island called Patmos, banished by the government. And it's there that he receives the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, of what would happen in the latter times. And now it seems like Peter's next. However, Peter doesn't die. As we read the rest of the chapter, Peter gets rescued. Now here's a, here's a question for you. Why did God allow James to be killed and Peter to be rescued? Certainly both of them were as devoted and dedicated to the Lord as the other. Certainly James had as much faith as Peter had. Why wasn't he delivered? Certainly the God who delivered Peter could also deliver James. But James wasn't delivered. James was killed. The answer is the sovereignty of God. God does what he wants because God is all-knowing and God doesn't owe us an explanation. I'm not trying to cop out by giving you that answer. That's leading somewhere. The Bible says that God says, my ways aren't your ways. In fact, my ways are so high, you can't even figure them out. And it seems that God has a perfect timing for every person. I don't believe a Christian dies an untimely death. I don't believe when a Christian dies, you can turn to the casket and say, he shouldn't have died, he was so young. Now, I wish he wouldn't have died. And it seems like he was too young and he had so much to live, but God knew from the beginning and he had an appointment with that individual at a certain time. It's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. God has an appointment with everybody. And if you're a believer, you are invincible until God's finished with you. And when God's finished with you, nothing's going to keep you here. And you really don't want to hang around here anyway. When God's ready to take you to heaven and give you all of the pleasures he stored up for you, who wants to hang around here? And so James, perhaps, received a greater deliverance than Peter. Peter had the opportunity to go on serving his Lord, bearing testimony of Jesus Christ for years, but James got to hang out in the presence of Jesus, get a new body without any suffering. And have what he always dreamed of, the very presence and the face-to-face -face experience with Jesus. Not a bad deal. And so for us to say, oh, poor James. Poor James? In the presence of God? Where Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain? Poor James? No. But God has timing for every person. And God delivers in a different way in each case. God was able to deliver James, but he delivered Peter. He had something in store for Peter, not for James. He had heaven in store for James. So it was time. Herod, take his head off. Peter is delivered this time, but there will come a time when Peter will not be delivered. Peter won't be delivered by God from death every time. Peter will kick the bucket someday too. Jesus told him, Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself and you walked where you wanted to walk. When you are older, you will stretch out your hands. Another will gird you 
and will carry you where you don't want to go, speaking of the death that he would die, of crucifixion upside down. So there came a time when Peter probably said, Lord, deliver me. And God said, no. Peter, you're old. It's time to go to heaven now. So does God deliver us from death every time? Of course not. I mean, think of living to be 280 years old. And never being able to die. What a horrible experience that would be. It's appointed unto man once to die. God has his deliverance and it happens to be at different times. God has a timing for each of us. I have heard people look at this passage and say, well, the reason Peter was delivered is because they were praying for Peter, but not for James to be released. There's no record of that in this chapter. And even if they were, wait till you find out how they prayed for Peter. It's actually comical. Because if they prayed for Peter to be released, which they did, they sure, certainly didn't pray with great faith. Because as soon as Peter was delivered, they said, I don't believe it. And you know, you hear so much about, well, you have to pray a certain kind of way and speak the word of faith, saying, I command Peter to come out of prison. Well, they didn't do that. In fact, when God did answer their prayer and he was delivered, they couldn't believe it. They wouldn't even open the door to let him in. We read that as we go on in this chapter. My point in all that is that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. God sees what you're going through and God works on your behalf. And in all things, God works together for your good. I know there's times you don't feel like that. It's, there are times when the circumstances would speak otherwise, but the truth is God has not taken a vacation from his throne. He is still in control of your life. And there are times when you just need to say, Lord, I don't know what you have in store, but whatever you dish out, I'll embrace because I trust you. It reminds me of a passage in the book of Exodus, this experience of Peter, where God sees what the children of Israel are going through under the hard bondage of the Egyptians. And God says to Moses, I have seen the oppression with which my people are oppressed. I see them by reason of their taskmasters. I have heard their prayers. I know their sorrow, and I will come and deliver them. I'm not blind to this, Moses. I know that they've been in suffering for some time. But I see it, and I'm going to work. Now, as we go on, you could write over this next section, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ear is open to their prayer, which we just read about in the book of First Peter. His ear is open to their prayer. Let's read about it. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Before we move on, slip back up to a verse, and that's in verse 4. When they apprehended Peter, they put him in prison, delivered him to 16 soldiers, four squads of soldiers to keep him. Now, what that meant is that they would have four people guarding him for three hours at a time. And they had shifts. They'd be three hours on, nine hours off, three hours on. And so four guards would be attached to him. Two, one would be chained to his right arm, one chained to his left arm, and two guards watching the door. They would only do this for very dangerous prisoners. And I chuckle at that because they're doing that with Peter. 
Now, before skipping that by, you should say, why would they guard Peter so heavily? Because I think they've learned their lesson. Remember what happened in chapter 5 when they arrested the disciples in Jerusalem, put them in prison because of what was going on in the temple area. Many people were coming to know Christ. They put them in prison, and it says, at night an angel sprung them and said, go out into the temple and tell all the people all the words of this life. And so they went out to Solomon's porch and preached again. Well, at the very same time, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, has a meeting. And during the meeting, they say, hey, go get those prisoners. Let's stand them trial before us right now. So they went over there and found the doors locked, but the prisoners gone. The guards standing outside, standing their post, but the prisoners gone. And they told the Sanhedrin that. And the chief of the Sanhedrin said, oh, I wonder what's going to come of this now. They couldn't figure out how they were released. So now they figure out, okay, no way. Not just a couple guards on the outside. I want this man chained to people. Because angels spring this guy. And, uh, well, let's see if it worked. But constant prayer was offered to him, or to God for him, by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the doors were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side. I like that. I'll tell you why in a minute. And raised him up quickly, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real. He thought it was just a dream, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And Peter had come to himself, and he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the Jewish people. That's great. Now back in verse 5, it says Peter was in prison, but, the contrast word, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. That is the turning point of this whole chapter. Here's a trial. A guy's in prison, but somebody's praying for him. And that, Praying for him changes the whole texture and the outcome of this trial. You know, it's been said very wisely that trials will either break your back or bend your knee. There are some Christians who go through trials and they just whine all the time. Wah, wah, wah. And it breaks their back. All they do is complain that they're in a trial. Hey, nobody likes them. If we were to take a vote tonight, if it would work, how many of us would like to exclude trials from our lives? It would be unanimous, probably. But not a lot of people will whine to God about it or take it to the Lord or have somebody pray for them, covenant as a prayer partner to get through the thing. It's just, woe is me, I am undone. Well, Peter was in prison. People were praying for him. In fact, down in verse 12, So when they considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Never underestimate the power of prayer, ever. 
I had a girl come to me one time. She was going through some trials. And I counseled her out of the word. I said, let's come, take this to the Lord right now and pray. And she said, what good is that going to do? Well, it, it shows you right there with that statement how much faith she has in God's ability to work on her behalf. Not very much. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus said, I'll be in their midst. And if any two agree together on anything on earth, it will be done for them in heaven. As long as it's according to the will of God, Jesus says later, it's going to be done. When we first started this fellowship, we didn't know if we should have a Bible study, if it should be once a week, once a month, if it should be a church. We didn't know what we were doing. And in many respects, perhaps we still don't. But nonetheless, we got together on Monday nights and decided we're going to pray. And people would often ask me, well, what's the next step? I don't know, but we're going to pray. And a week or two later, well, now what do we do? I don't know, but let's just keep praying about it until God would give us direction. When we reached a spot where we had overgrown our present facility over on Snow Heights, and the owner of it wanted to charge double the rent because he saw a lot of people were coming. Therefore, he thought, these people can afford a lot more than they're paying me. And when he was going to take us to court over the matter, we prayed. And as we prayed, we looked over every building we could find in this town, and we took every suggestion from every person that we met for a possible building. And we found nothing. We came up empty. We put our nets in, and we came up empty. But we continued to pray. And as we continued to pray, somebody said, who's on my board, hey, have you ever thought about the sports center? And I didn't even know that this thing was up for sale. And as the story goes, the Lord enabled us to buy it. So, okay, Peter's in prison. Constant prayer is made for him. I love what Thomas Watson said. He was a Puritan preacher. The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but prayer fetched the angel. Oh, the angel did it, but prayer got God's attention, and God said, Hey, angel, you're not doing anything over there. Go get this guy out of prison, would you? Prayer fetched the angel. James said one of the most important promises that if you aren't familiar with it, you should be now in the last chapter of the book of James, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much or will get the job done. Now, he goes on to talk about Elijah. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, or a man of like passions. In other words, he had doubts, he had failures, he didn't have a big halo on his head. He was just a normal, everyday person, a man of like passions, like you and I are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. He was an ordinary person, but he lived in the presence of God. And so he was able to go to King Ahab and say, hey, it's not going to rain. And it won't rain until I say it's going to rain. And he prayed to God earnestly, and God answered his prayer. However, I just want to uh, follow this up by a qualification. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's the qualification. You must be a righteous person to pray. You say, but the Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. Oh, I agree with you there. 
But then concerning Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, you can't become righteous by trying to be. You have to believe in Jesus. He makes you righteous. Point is, only the prayers of Christians matter. God will only listen and work on the prayer of a person who's a born-again child of God. Not an unbeliever. Unless the unbeliever says the first prayer, and the only prayer God will answer for an unbeliever first is, Jesus, save me. Wash me of my sins. I take you as my Lord and Savior. That's the only prayer God will answer for an unbeliever. And then once a person has said that prayer, he's a believer. And he believes God, and God gives him the righteousness of Christ by faith. And that's the qualification, is that you're saved. Second qualification is that you pray according to the will of God. You can't just say, God, I, like a Sears catalog, point to the picture, and that's what I want. For John said in his epistle, And if we pray anything according to his will, we have the confidence that we have the petition we've desired of him. James said, we should not say tomorrow we will go into this city, spend a year, buy and sell and make a profit. But we should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do it. Lord, is that what you want us to do? Praying according to the will of God and then also praying with the right motivation. For remember, James again said in his little epistle, you have not because you ask not. And even when you ask, God still doesn't give it to you because you ask that you might spend it on your own pleasures. You're asking with the wrong motivation, not for the glory of God. qualifications for effective prayer in the scripture. I can hear somebody saying, yeah, but didn't Jesus say, whatever you ask in my name, that I will give to you? Whatever? Whatever is pretty broad, isn't it? Doesn't that mean that I can say anything and pray for anything and agree on earth and God is bound to give it to you? No, he's not. Because you got to look at it in context. Who is he speaking to? Anybody? No, he was speaking to a group he called disciples. He said, well, I'm a disciple, are you? Jesus said, if anyone follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. That's a disciple. Well, if you've denied yourself, you've taken up the cross of Christ and you're following Jesus Christ, then you're going to pray for things that bring glory to God, not selfish kinds of things. And God will answer your prayers. I love what one person said. God has editing rights over our prayers. He goes on to say, He will receive them as a teacher does a term paper. He'll edit them, correct them, bring them in line with His will, then hand them back to us to be resubmitted. Well, that's right on. I heard a story of a little girl who was praying one night in her bedroom and her grandpa was walking by and put his ear to the door and all he could hear was, the girl repeating her ABCs with a pious fervency. And after a few minutes, when she got to L-M-N-O-P, he opened the door and said, what are you doing? She said, I'm praying. She said, I really don't know what to pray for, so I'm just giving God all of the letters and asking Him to assemble the right words. 
I believe in her innocence. God was doing that. Now look in verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping. For a minute, just think about that. Peter in the morning most probably was going to get his head chopped off. He's in chains between two guards. Two guards are watching the door. In the morning, he's going to be dead, and he's sleeping. Could you sleep under those circumstances? I mean, I lose sleep when I think about someone in another state, a relative of mine who perhaps would be sick. He's sawing logs. Now, he's really sleeping because the angel has to kick him to get him up. He's not lightly sleeping. How is it that a person under such circumstances can get a good night's sleep? Number one, people were praying for him constantly. Like we read about in verse 12. And we read about in verse 5. People were praying for him. He had other people who were constantly praying for him. And when you have people praying for you, the result of that is peace. Be anxious for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will rule in your heart. And no doubt Peter was praying. They were praying for him and he felt peaceful. Also, Peter was a man of the word. As you read some of his sermons in the book of Acts, the guy knew the Bible. He quoted the Bible. Perhaps he was thinking of such promises as this one. Psalm 4. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Or how about this one out of Isaiah? Fear not, for I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, I'm your God. I will strengthen you, yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But I think there was a deeper reason that Peter was able to get sleep that night. And that is, Jesus personally gave him a promise that he wouldn't die young. In John 21, and I'll say it to you again, we just quoted it. Peter, when you were young, you girded yourself and you walked wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will gird you and carry you where you don't want to go. When you're old, Peter. So he knew, he remembered that promise. He goes, hey, I'm a young man. I'm not going to die tomorrow. Jesus promised me that it wouldn't happen until I'm old. Turned over and he went to sleep. He was able to rest his life into the hands and the promises of God. As we said again, you are indestructible till God is finished with you. Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses used by God in the great tribulation period, performing signs and wonders. People tried to kill him, but they couldn't. But when they finished their testimony, the beast had power to overtake them and kill them. It's only when you finish your testimony and God's done with you, and then, hey, let's go. And so it was with Peter. Look at verse 7. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, a light shone in the prison. He struck Peter on the side, raised him up, saying, Get up quickly. Chains fell off of his hands. The angel said to him, Gird yourself, tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garments and follow me. And he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. 
I want you to note that the angel does the impossible but expects Peter to do the possible. Couldn't the angel have miraculously just put the sandals on his feet for him and had him just, you know, in his coat and ready to go? I mean, you can take make chains fall off of a guy's arm. Certainly, he could just be standing ready to go. But he didn't do that. There's always a cooperation of the natural with the supernatural, I believe, where you have a responsibility to just do the rest. Pray, ask God to do it, and then cooperate with Him. Jesus fed the multitudes with a few loaves and fishes, but the disciples had to pass them out. And then He said, collect the fragments that remain. Twelve baskets full. Jesus raised up Jairus' daughter from the dead. But as soon as she was raised up, Jesus told her parents, give her something to eat. Be practical. Use your common sense now. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but they had to roll the stone away. Couldn't Jesus have? They had to unwind him. There was a cooperation. Peter had to do something. And so, finally Peter woke up out of this thing. Actually, he didn't wake up. He realized, I haven't been asleep. It's been an angel all along. He had no further directions. The angel didn't say, now go to the place where they're praying. He had to use his common sense. And he thought, where should I go? Now, if he would have stood in the middle of the Jerusalem and said, Lord, I'm not going to go anywhere till you give me a voice from heaven and tell me where you want me to go, he would have been arrested. He probably said, Lord, give me your wisdom. i got to get out of here. And he thought, hey, we'll go to John Mark's house. His mom has a prayer meeting over there. And so he went. And verse 12. When he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. The mother, yeah, I just read that, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, listen to their faith, you're beside yourself. Or, you're nuts, woman. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, and they said, it's his angel. Peter's out there continually knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Now think about that. They're praying constantly for Peter. Lord, in Jesus' name, release him from prison. It's me. Hey, Peter's out there. Oh, you're crazy. Doesn't sound like they had a whole lot of faith. And yet they were probably in the natural afraid that it was Roman soldiers. Yet she said, I saw him. He's out there wanting to get in. They had enough faith to pray for him, but not enough to open the door. God could spring him from prison, but Peter couldn't even get himself into a prayer meeting. And they said it was his angel. And Peter continued knocking when they opened the door and saw him. They were astonished, but motioning to him with his hand to keep silent. They were probably making a big to-do. And declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brother. Not the James, obviously, who was just killed, but James now, the brother, flesh brother of Jesus, 
the brother of Jude, the brother of Jesus in the flesh, who is presiding over the church in Jerusalem. And go to the brethren, he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what became of Peter. Ah, I can imagine. At this point, Peter walks off the pages of Scripture and we slightly see him in Acts chapter 15 at the Council of Jerusalem and that's it. What he does, we don't know, except it's probable that he went to Corinth. From 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul indicates that Peter had a wife, was married, and traveled in an itinerant ministry with his wife, and probably went to Corinth and visited Corinth. There is no indication that he went to Rome and became the first pastor or leader of the church of Rome. In fact, it's very doubtful that he ever did, because Paul later on goes to Rome, and when he wrote his letter to Rome, he would have included Peter in it. He included everybody but Peter. Peter's ministry became a ministry to the Gentiles, or to the Jews rather than the Gentiles, like Paul's was. Verse 19, when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he stayed there. Now you could write over this section that whole portion of Psalm 34. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ear is open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He was chained in between the guards. The angels sprung him from prison. According to Roman law, if you let a prisoner escape, you will take upon yourself the punishment intended for them. So they were put to death. And now he's down in Caesarea. And we get to verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, and asked for peace. Because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Tyre and Sidon are these large commercial cities still in modern-day Lebanon. They were getting many of their grains and fruits from Israel. Herod was being good to them, and for some reason uh, they got on his bad side, and he just had an embargo, just cut their supply, and they were suffering. And so they hired this guy to sort of politically maneuver Herod into getting their uh, supply back. And on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Now, I'm sure that he was just eating this up. He loved it. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, perhaps the same angel that sprung Peter, because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. In a book that I have on my shelf called The Antiquities of the Jews by Flavius Josephus, he writes several paragraphs regarding this very event. He was a Jewish historian. He was hired by the Romans to write about the goings-on in Judea and Israel. And he said, Now when Agrippa had reigned for three years over all of Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratos Towers, and there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar. 
upon his being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, at which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons, and such as were of dignity through his province, on the second day of which shows he put on a garment made wholly of silver, and a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him, and presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place, another from another place, though not for his good, and said that he was a god, but they added, Be thou merciful to us. These are the people who want their grain back in Tyre and Sidon. For although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet we shall henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterwards looked up, he saw an owl sitting on an entire rope, a certain rope over his head, and immediately understood that this bird was a messenger not of good tidings, but of evil. He fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. Josephus goes on to say that after five days he died, and it's evident that he had, and according to what Paul, um, Luke writes in the book of Acts, now remember Luke was a doctor, the word for worms was intestinal worms. He got some kind of a parasite that attacked him, he wasn't treated for it, and after five days he died. Luke points out the reason that he died at this time from the disease in verse 23. The angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. Pride comes before a fall. In the book of Isaiah, God said, I will not share my glory with anyone else. You know, it's very easy for people to adulate and worship other people. See someone that you think is very important, very famous, even in... Uh, spiritual circle, somebody who has a famous television ministry perhaps, and you think that he's a few steps above you or I. And the danger is that person can start believing all of those things that are false about him, like he's something special. And every time I read this, and I think of people elevating themselves as some special man of God, I think, oh man, I hope I hope that guy doesn't get eaten by worms. Not that God has repeated this, and I don't know, maybe he has, but I don't want to risk it. God doesn't want to share his glory with another. But interesting, instead of Peter being killed by Herod, Herod is killed by Peter's God. And look at verse 24. The word of God, oh, I forgot the most important, but the word of God grew and multiply. You see, at the beginning of this chapter, it seemed like Herod was in control. The church is persecuted. At the end of the chapter, Herod is dead. And the church continues to grow and to flourish. The secret, a praying church. There's all sorts of opportunities. There's men's prayer meetings here. There's kinship groups. 
There's women's prayer meeting that goes on, women's ministries that go on. People even gather before certain of the services in the back room and they pray. The Word of God grew and multiplied. Oh, the effect in your life when someone prays for you. That's why if you're going through something, find someone who's a friend of yours and say, hey, this week these things perhaps could happen. Please be a prayer partner for me. Alan Redpath said, keep your chin up and your knees down. And it's still true that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight as we close this service, we thank you for your promises that the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous avail much. In many respects, Lord, our resources are very limited, but we address one that sees no limit to his resource. One who is completely sovereign and omniscient and omnipotent. Lord, I pray that you'd convince us that prayer is not a last resort when everything else in our own human resources fail, but it's our first privilege and honor to come before you and set whatever we're going through before you because your eyes are upon us. Your ears are open to our prayers. And the hand of the Lord is against those who do evil. Lord, we're in a no-lose situation with you. And we thank you that we have seen in Peter's life the fulfillment of that promise in the book of Psalms. May we now trust you and come before you more and more in prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.